Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Lunarverse. I'm your host, Dr. Charles Liu, but please, if you have any inclination at all, call me Chuck. Today, we are very, very lucky to have two amazing guests on this show. And well, why two? And why these two? Well, we often hear of the music of the spheres, but not so much the poetry of the stars. And of course, since astronomy is the poetic science, I figured it'd be a really nice opportunity, considering a particular book just came out recently, talking about the poetry of outer space. So let's go right to it. Let's begin by introducing our co-host, Alan Liu. Hey, Alan. Hello. Uh, what's going on these days? Anything poetic going on on your side of things? Oof, I don't know about poetic exactly. I mean, I have a, a new microphone for this episode, so Ooh. we'll see how that goes. Ah. That's more like a about hearing the poetry rather than making it. <laughs> okay, so later you're going to recite poem into a brand new microphone. That would be super cool. That's uh, the hope. <laughs> okay, I can't wait. Now, let us introduce our two guests. Our first guest, Dr. Yun Wang. Hello, Yun. Hi. It's so good to have you here. Thank you so much. Now, you uh, intersect in both astronomy and poetry. Uh, tell us how. Please. Well, you can say I was born into poetry since when I was a baby, when I cried, my dad would carry me off into dark corridor and recite poetry to me, and I would stop <laughs> crying. <laughs> wow. Nice. How did I get into astronomy? <clears throat> well, I grew up in a really dark area, right, kind of rural, right, so you could actually see the night sky, you know, so... <sighs> glorious you know you could see in milky way That's so lovely. since i was a little kid i always wondered what are they you know what's out there right so my ambition when i was a little kid was always you know to grow up and go as far away as i can from home and explore <laughs> the universe so that's precisely what I'm doing now. So I'm living my dream. So happy. Oh, fantastic. And so you're now in Pasadena, California, doing that stuff with awesome science, cosmological uh, research, which we'll talk about in a short time. Uh, our second guest uh, is Mitch Goldberg. Hello, Mitch. Hello. I'm excited because you have such an interesting background as well. And it's not exactly astronomy related, but through the poetry, you have come to the universe and knocked at its literary doorstep. Please tell us how you got into this world of astronomy and space and poetry and all that. Well, I too, as a little kid, always loved looking up at the, at the stars and had my books about you'll go to the moon. Um, grew up mm -hmm. in Florida where we stood outside of our high school and watched the very first space shuttle take off across the saw it streaking across the sky and uh just kind of always was interested in 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 stars and space and, and all that i came to poetry uh older and i write my, a lot of my own poetry but then when i had this opportunity i just thought this was just the perfect combination to be able to look for poems about outer space just they seem to be um you know, kind of looking for the same things, astronomers and poets looking for answers. So I loved how they went together. So true. Oh, you've said so well. And I know that a lot of times, you know, astronomers or scientists in general kind of like look at poetry and go, 
Hmm. <laughs> but at the same time, I know that there are often poets that look at astronomy and go, hmm. <laughs> so somehow today in these moments that we have together, I hope that we can bridge that hmm, gap into, <laughs> ah, that'll be fun. All right. So let us start as we often do. Let us start as we so often do with today's joyfully cool cosmic thing. And Alan, uh, this has to do with a possible candidate relativistic tidal disruption event. Uh, have I thrown oh, too many fun. words together? <laughs> anyway. As long as you explain them, it'll be fine. Okay. Uh, a recent study has shown that there's been a flare of radio emission from a distant galaxy, maybe 800, 900 million light years away from Earth. And it's just been getting brighter and brighter and brighter for years. People are like, what the heck? What was it based on? Why is there something happening like that? Well, careful observation showed that the location of this flare happens to be right near a supermassive black hole system in this galaxy. And so that's like remarkable. And now a hypothesis has been formed where the reason this flare is happening is because a supermassive black hole at the center of this galaxy, which is causing this sort of active galactic nucleus activity, is also ripping a star apart as we watch. Over the course of years, the star is being torn to shreds and being eaten by the black hole. And in the process, that releases huge amounts of radio energy. Um, incredibly psyched about this because I love seeing this sort of thing happen hundreds of millions of light years away where we don't have to worry about things like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just, um, who, who here doesn't like black holes? Uh, Midge, do you dislike black holes? I think black holes are great mainly because it's a metaphor and there's your first connection to poetry. Oh. The terms that you're using are metaphors. Right. I mean, it's not really well, a hole, is it? On the other, on the other hand, actually, it is kind of black and it is kind of a hole. Uh, but that's that's literal too. Hmm. Oh, this is good. Literal. It's sort of both. I think. Yeah. What do you think, Alan? You your black. Well, hole I mean, like relationship. So I'm thinking about black holes, right? Like the idea is that they're so they're they're kind of black, but they're kind of also emitting all this light from the accretion disks and everything. So they're they're kind of not that. But like, I'm just thinking about the history of it because before. There was the idea of black holes. There was the idea of dark stars, which were like the sort of conceptual predecessors to to what we now know as black holes. And That's I'm true. sure people could explain that even better than I could. Oh no, but like, not at all. But now they, it's like they're not like they're often described as holes, but they're also like these really puzzling and exciting objects that are like out there pulling everything in towards them, and it's and it's really impressive. That's very cool. Now, uh, you you have, of course, your own cosmological, general relativistic perspective on black holes, as opposed to my sort of more phenomenological object of black holes having no hair and just watching stuff drop in. Uh, so tell that us one's a metaphor. <laughs> True. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your take. I mean, black holes and, and, and something like this, a tidal disruption event where you're actually eating a star and we're watching the results. Um, my take is very similar to yours, actually. Um, so 
I guess the way I think about black holes is kind of boring, right? <laughs> I just think of them as where gravity is extremely strong. Well, in cosmology, you know, we mainly explore the large, largest scales where gravity is very weak. <laughs> so, mm. yeah, but I do think black holes are pretty cool. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm fascinated by black holes ripping stars apart as a poet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is very cool then, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I already right. wrote so, down the phrase torn to shreds because how is that not a poem? <laughs> there you go. Well, I can't argue with that. That's wonderful. But yeah, your your science is indeed you much more than just one object at a time. You're looking at literally millions or even billions if possible of objects scattered across the universe to try to make sense of patterns of things happening to space and time itself, right? Give us a little sense of exactly what you're trying to do. Uh, not much at all. I just want the 3D locations of tens of millions of galaxies. So I have a 3D <laughs> map of the universe. Nothing at all, just the whole universe. universe. No, I can all. use that to answer questions such as, what is the universe made of? What is the ultimate fate of the universe? Uh -huh. Will it expand forever? Will it actually collapse? You know, so that's dark energy, of course. So, yeah, really fun. And eventually, someday, perhaps I can get half a billion or one billion galaxies in three D. Oh, that's my ultimate dream. A billion galaxies. That that's just mm -hmm. in three D. In three D. Wow. Okay. So we would be able to observe these. Uh, really, this entire data set only through like a headset with a 3D um, uh, virtual reality, really. That's remarkable. Or those goggles, those little red green glasses if you don't have a oh, headset. Oh, yeah. Okay. We can be in a theater <laughs> and watch the, those kinds of things happen. But um, the, the thing which interests me in what you just said, Yun, is that we seem already to have the answers basically to that, the, some of the questions, or at least to some extent, right? We already know that the universe is expanding. And based on what we what we know, we think the universe will expand forever because of this dark energy or cosmological constant that's in there. So are you sort of picking around the edges and trying to detail exactly how long it'll take? Or is there actually still fundamental questions about the fate of the universe that are not well understood yet? It's the latter. Oh. Okay, so we know the universe is expanding today, has been expanding since its birth we do not know i disagree <laughs> what you said we do not know that the universe will expand forever that's a huge assumption really okay we do not know so i think you said that because some people may go around saying oh we already know the answer you know why spend more money on these expensive satellites or whatever we know dark energy is a cosmological constant of course, if dark energy were a cosmological constant, the universe will expand forever. But we do not know that dark energy is, in fact, a cosmological constant. Right. Oh, my gosh. Well, we could go on forever and ever, and I have all kinds of questions. <laughs> we're going to have to get back to the science in a moment. For example, I, I really want to touch on this point about gravity being weak on such large scales compared to the quantum and, and all that, and the unification, what makes it so hard. But we, we got to put that aside for just a moment because I got to get to this book of poems. 
Midge, you've been listening so patiently to all of us as we're talking about the scientific <laughs> yeah. stuff. But tell me, how did you and Yun connect? And, and how did Yun wind up as one of the poets featured in this book? The, uh, the name of the book is Outer Space, 100 Poems. This is a picture of it. And it is cool. That's a nice picture. Ooh, yes. For those of you who are just listening to this, that the, the book looks very pretty. I would put it on my coffee table. Got a Milky Way on it. There. It, it does. Cool. It is. Yeah. A, it's published by Cambridge University Press. The, the cover photos, whoops, cover photo is actually from uh, Stowe, Vermont, not too far from here. So I liked that. Oh, cool. Another place where there's dark sky. Yep. Oh, wonderful. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, how Yoon and I got connected. So I did a lot of things researching um, what poems to include. And one of the phases of my research was doing a lot of searching on the internet, combining every possible word I could think of that had to do with astronomy with the word poem. And I can't be sure exactly which combination, but it was probably either galaxy or Andromeda um, (laughs) that brought me to Ewan's poem. And so I looked her up and I sent her an email. Would you be interested in being included in this book? And she wrote right back and said she would. And that was very exciting. And then I got the bonus, which is that when I looked up her um, other publication credits, I saw that she also translated poetry. And I said, I would love to include this um, Adufu poem in the book. Um, Would you possibly be able to translate it? And Ewan said, well, I'm working on a proposal for a mission to space. So I (laughs) have enough time. And I said, okay, okay, that's more important. And then about three hours later, she sent me her first version of the translation. (laughs) You finished the proposal in three hours? Oh my gosh. That's amazing. Fantastic. I loved it. So I'm so glad that I found her. Oh, that's just great. You you know, uh, Dufu, for for those of you in the audience who don't know, uh, is usually um, considered one of the two greatest poets of the Tang Dynasty mm-hmm. in China, the other being Li Bo or Li Bai, depending on how you pronounce Li it. Bai. Yeah. Li Bai, Li Bai Right. These two are uh, just side by side. They're they're what the yin and the yang of of uh, Chinese Tang Dynasty poetry, and so I myself know exactly one poem uh, in Chinese that I can recite, and it is one that. Um, Every school child uh, in Taiwan mm-hmm. in the seventh grade must learn and memorize. Um, fortunately, it's only 20 syllables long. So it's only a little bit longer than a haiku, so it's easier. But it's Li Bai, and it, it's called Ye Si, or Night Thoughts. And um, it's a beautiful little poem, but it's really short. So I, I'm just going to say it in Chinese. And then I actually translated it uh, for fun, for no apparent reason, into iambic tetrameter which is what Robert Frost used in a lot of his poems. Uh, so it sounds like this. That's it. Isn't that cool? So if you're a seventh grader in Taiwan, start practicing. You'll get this done. You'll win prizes for reading that. It's, anyway. In the seventh. <laughs> I was very, very lucky. Yes, uh, there's a, an art, a visual poet named Monica Ong uh, Reed who uh, took this and, and did some additional art on this. So it was very nice. And, and uh, see if I can remember what I what I wrote from this tetrameter. It was um, before my bed, the moonlight falls. It looks to me like frost on loam. I raise my head 
the moon shines bright. Then I look down and think of home. Same idea, right? Short. Mm -hmm. so, so mm -hmm. This is 32 yeah. syllables instead of 20 syllables, uh, but it's all in a strict form. And it's just uh, these kinds of ideas. Midge, tell me about Tell me about these poems. Tell me about what you've chosen. Well, yeah, it was it was great. I mean, I, I started, of course, with um, poems, you know, somewhat newer poems that really about landing on the moon or the, you know, Hubble telescope or astronauts. And so I started to work on the concept of the book and I decided I wanted it to stretch out further. I wanted it to reach back further. Even though I was looking at poems that were hundreds or even thousands of years old, I could see some of the same themes repeating as ones that were written now. And ah. I just loved following those connections all the way through there. And also the way people write about outer space. Sometimes they're telling a story about outer space and using poetry to tell the story in a better way. Other times they're using stuff in outer space as a metaphor for something very personal, like love or, or loss. And so I liked following those themes too. So it just, it was just so much fun to just stumble on a poem from, you know, ancient Egypt or stumble on a poem from, um, you know, somebody in Australia or another one from from a, a Native American poem from not very far from here, from the Algonquin tribe. Um, you know, wow. and, and so it was just I just had so much fun finding all these poems. And of course, the challenge was limiting it to only a hundred the the series cambridge has a <laughs> series of, of books called a hundred poems and usually wow. about poets or poetic schools but i got them to agree to do this on outer space and then i then i realized oh i can only pick a hundred so <laughs> <laughs> Alas. no that's super cool though um but you and yeah comment on this please on on, on this for a moment yeah. well um i was thrilled to um be included in this uh, amazing anthology that Mitch put together after a lot of labor of love, <laughs> incredible amount of work, I'm sure. So I think it's just astounding, you know, to have poetry about space or relating to space, at least some one way or another, right? Yeah. Over mm -hmm. millennia. Yeah. <laughs> It so is. That's just, yeah. Okay. So thank you so much, Mitch, for including me. So <laughs> I'm honored. You know, you and taught me something too about it. So she, I, I loved her poem, and it's about she'll. I think she's going to read it later about you know going out into the galaxy and Andromeda galaxy. But she also goes back home, and she's talking about a garden. And then when she was translating the Du Fu, she was telling me that he's talking about a garden too, his own garden. And wow. I realized that there was, I mean, I don't know if it was on exactly on purpose, but they both have this theme of both outer space and home. And then I started to see that theme go out throughout the book. Other poets who talk about bringing home with them when they go out into space. And uh, it was just... In the garden. Yeah, in the garden. <laughs> I'm blown. My mind is being blown more and more because <laughs> for all, all of you out there in the audience who are like, poetry? Hmm. I think we're starting to go, <laughs> ah, now, just a little tiny bit. Let's take a question. Alan, is there a student question that we can bring uh, to Midge and Yun and sort of have them talk about it a little bit? Yeah. So the first question we're going to bring out here is from William, who is asking, how can poetry be used to communicate astronomy research? Ooh. Yun, I think, I, think, I think both you and Midge 
uh, Yun being, you know, a researcher. Midge, you go first. How? Mm-hmm. How? Well, there is a poem in this book called Olber's Paradox, which tries to explain uh. Olber's Paradox. And coincidentally, the first person, I believe, who gave a reasonable explanation of Olber's Paradox was Edgar Allan Poe, who was a poet. Yeah, I remember reading that somewhere. That was cool. So, um, I think po- I think that poetry gives people, I mentioned metaphor before, I think Poetry can give people a nice metaphor to hang on to when they're trying to understand a somewhat more abstract con- concept. And now I'll wow. let you take over because she's really the one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, but what is Olber's Paradox? Now that you've read the poem Olber's Paradox, do you understand Olber's Paradox? I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that Olber's Paradox is the question of why, if the night sky is full of stars, is it not always light out? Yes. Mm-hmm. You did it. It worked. Poetry did communicate astronomy research. Yay. I mean, it's not yeah. like you are completely ignorant about science. So I, I don't want to make give people that impression at all because you are a very accomplished technical individual as well, which we will try to get into in a few minutes. But, but that's I did cool learn that it that from this poem. So you did learn that from this poem. Yes, I did. Yes. That's awesome. That's great. Okay. That's going in my <laughs> astronomy classes this fall. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, Yun, your your same question to to you. How how can poetry communicate astronomy research? Well, um, since I'm both an astronomer and a poet, I don't actually do it intentionally. <laughs> so, but people have always told me, "Oh, I love the astronomy poems in your book. Oh, I love the science poems." I, and I said, really? Which ones? You know, so I don't even think about it. You yourself, just in your poetry, you are communicating astronomy research. But for you, it's kind of like not intentional. You you just right. do it because it's it comes out of you. Because, yeah, it's part of me, right? It's how I think. So I am looking at the world through a poet's eye, but I'm also a trained astronomer. Yeah, and then when I write poetry, now and then, you know, it it's there. Wow, I like <laughs> it's that. fun. That on both that's sides. Great. No, that's both. great. And and it, you are a living, breathing example of how you should not think of a human being as only left-brained or only right-brained, which is such a common claim of people out in the world. In fact, we are both. We are all both-brained. Right, that's what we are. Exactly. And, and, why? Why name it yourself? Yeah, that's great. And uh, let's let's hear the poem now. Go for it, you. Let Let's hear it. Space Journal Serendipity. En route to Andromeda, I launch luminous spheres into the black desert of space to measure the expansion of the universe. Back to the garden, the air sparkles. Hildegard Baron singing Brunhilda's dilemma. Resist the urge to touch rainbow fish in the ninny pond. Climb the aspen tree, its eyes latch onto my toes. Light takes two million years to reach Andromeda. The universe is almost empty. A cat's reflection gazes back at me 
from the dome's translucent dark vault. Whoa! Whoa! <laughs> oh, now, man! Someone can make a movie based on this poem, so I claim. Oh, okay? completely. So I provide, right, the main idea here. So um, also the garden, right? So yeah. Mitch read it as actual garden, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of flashback of home. But here, I actually meant like an actual garden on a spaceship. Yeah. Okay. Or hollow deck, but factory and actual garden, except it's the kind of futuristic garden, right? That <laughs> take very little space and yes. have magical things. So the aspen trees are actually, you know, able to make sure I don't fall from the tree when I climb it. <laughs> Amazing. That's yeah. And cool. so the science, yeah. So the science, right? So so we measure the expansion of the universe using standard candles. That's how we know the expansion right. of the universe is speeding up and it's accelerating. Right. And the standard candles we use is called a type 1A supernova. Mm. It's just like wrong. It's the explosive death of white dwarfs which weigh exactly 1.4 times the mass of the sun. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, they reach that limit and they just explode in runway nuclear reaction. It's pretty dramatic. So dramatic. They light up the universe. Literally, yes. <laughs> you can see them, you know, across the universe. And so here I'm saying that in the future, right, can you imagine someone can you me in a future <laughs> incarnation? Uh -huh. uh, not that I believe in that sort of thing, okay? <laughs> Metaphorically speaking. So I imagine that I'll be on a spaceship and doing experiment to measure the expansion of the universe then. Wow. Because the expansion of the universe changes, right? So we need mm. standard candles. That's why I have the spheres, you know, I will have identical spheres, yes. which will have the same luminosity, extremely bright. So then, of course, en route to Andromeda. So it's right. So I imagine we will not get to Andromeda for a very long time. <laughs> yes, so fair. <laughs> probably in keeping with the capability of doing an experiment to measure expansion rate of the universe from yes. spaceship. Oh, wow. Yeah. There's so then, much there. Oh, yes. Finally, it's a bit of quirky fantasy at the end. Uh -huh. Okay. So why am I seeing cast reflection gazing back at me? Yeah. Well, because I can morph into a cat. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I told you. Someone That's can make wonderful. a whole movie based on this poem. Oh, wow. Well, I had so much fun writing, writing this so poem. Fun. Wow. Yeah. I, I, that's so marvelous. And, you know, I when I heard you say garden, I first thought Garden of Eden. You were thinking about the original oh, beauty. Too. Why not? Uh -huh. your, your vision of the holodeck was exactly what I was thinking of. You know, a Star Trek, you know, holodeck mm -hmm. first introduced in the debut of this Next Generation series. Um, and I also thought of uh, at the end there, you're talking about the cat for a moment there. I thought you were talking about Schrodinger and you were 
thinking I'll about parallel unit, you know, multi, many worlds interpretation mm-hmm. of quantum mechanics, where you could be a cat because every single mm-hmm. possibility exists. Uh, That's a new uh, take on Schrodinger's cat. Why not? Not, not right? only is the, is it the cat <laughs> you're not sure if it's alive or dead, and you can't be sure, but also you could be the cat yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. So I love cats, right? So if I can be a shapeshifter, I would. Uh, change myself into a cat ah, so at least for a few days you know until you get tired of it <laughs> <laughs> my theory about that is most poets are cat people yeah. <laughs> fair really interesting wow. maybe cats are more cosmic than dogs <laughs> well dogs are more I, earthly I yeah. cats, well remember cats used to be worshipped as gods in ancient egypt right because they're very right. dignified they're aloof you know right. they're so perfectly beautiful that's they true. could they could be gods if we didn't know better. Maybe maybe <laughs> like the planets and such, right? They're yeah. also aloof. That's true. Oh, this is how poetry relates to astronomy. We just start talking randomly and that's how it goes, right? <laughs> hey, is Chuck Liu here? Thanks for hanging with us for part one of our time with Yun Wang and Mitch Goldberg and co-host Alan Liu. We talked about so much great stuff that we just had to split this up into two parts. So stay tuned for part two of this episode, where we'll continue with the poetry that explores the wonders of the universe, as well as the science behind it. If you like what you see and hear, please join us on Patreon. And as always, thank you for being a part of the Lunarverse.